Okay, welcome to our new series. So as many of you know, my name is Rabbi Hillel Shaps. I work for the Greater Washington Community Kollel, and I run a program called Links. And this, uh, this Wednesday night rotating series is part of our Links programming. Um, and uh, we, uh, with Purim, not too far off now, about eight weeks away. So it's time to start learning about Purim and learning about the Megillah, of course, one of the central, perhaps the most central mitzvah commandment of Purim is to read the Megillah. We read it the evening of Purim. We read it in the daytime. Men and women are obligated to hear the Megillah. And, um, and it's one of the, you know, the highlight of Purim tells the story for which we, which we celebrate Purim. Now, the Talmud actually brings a dispute as to how much of the Megillah we actually have to read. So there's various opinions presented, but one of them is you got to read the whole Megillah, as they say, right? You got to read the whole thing. And the Talmud actually comes out that that is the halacha, that is how we rule, that is codified, and that's what we do. We read the entire Megillah. Now, there's a comment that always... Um, challenged me or was always, I was always fascinated by of the Vilna Gong, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, and others make similar comments, but he makes it on this point where he writes that, that the, the reason why there is a mitzvah to read the whole thing is because every single part of the Megillah is essential, is important, for the actual miracle of Purim. His language is that every verse tells the, the, tells of the miracle. And as I mentioned, there's similar language in other, in other commentaries. I put one on the flyer also from Reb Shlomo Al-Kabetz, the great 16th century Kabbalist, um, who has a huge work on the Megillah. He writes a very similar thing that every, every part of the story, every verse, every word, is telling you something. It's telling you an important piece of the miracle. So I was fascinated by this line and I kind of set out to try to identify as many explanations for what, what are these points? It's still a work in progress. You know, I, I, don't, I haven't nailed down every word and every verse, but I'm trying to piece together some of the, you know, maybe not as obvious little events and, 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 and points that the Megillah makes and how they fit into the overall story and the overall miracle. That there's a, a mitzvah, a commandment we have that we are, when, we, when a great miracle occurs, we are to thank God by reciting Hallel. Hallel is a compilation of a number of chapters of Tehillim, of Psalms. And we say it, for example, on Hanukkah to celebrate the miracle of Hanukkah. However, we don't recite Hallel on Purim. And the Talmud asks, why don't we recite Hallel on Purim? And it gives a number of, of answers, but one of the answers is that reading the Megillah is the Hallel of Purim. Reading the Megillah is the Hallel of Purim. So Rabbi David Cohen, who is a leading uh, Rosh Yeshiva, he's the head of the Yeshiva in the Hebron Yeshiva, which is in Jerusalem. It's, it used to be in Hebron, but it's in Jerusalem. He explains that the idea behind this, the idea that reading the Megillah is the Hallel, is the praise, the thanks of God of Purim, 
is that this type of miracle, the miracle of Purim, which again, for those less familiar, we'll, we'll explain everything, but it's a miracle that, that happened without going beyond the, the laws of nature. It happened in a natural way. So typically we wouldn't say Hallel for such a thing. We wouldn't say Hallel. We only would say Hallel for, for a great salvation, a great miracle that happened beyond the laws of nature. However, when it comes to, the, to, to, to Purim, when it comes to the Megillah, the Talmud wants to know why we don't say Hallel. But what's the question? Because it, it was natural. So that's why we don't say Hallel. But the idea is that it may have been natural, no miraculous events that we can point to. But if you take all the events together and you look at them, how one thing led to the next, and each, each of these natural events, then you see the supernatural, you see the miraculous. If you string everything together, it becomes very clear that there is something miraculous going on. And therefore, he says, he explains that the sages, when they instituted Purim and they instituted the reading of the Megillah, they said, this is the only way to express Hallel, to express the praise of God for this salvation, is to actually read the Megillah. To thank God in another way, it's, it, it's, not, it's not obvious to us what it is that we're thinking on unless we tell the story, unless we go through the story carefully. Every verse, every moment of the, of the Purim story, that brings out the, the miracle when we see how all of these pieces fit together so beautifully. <clears throat> so some of these events, some of these occurrences that contribute to the great miracle are obvious, you know, why they were so important. Some of them are less obvious. So just to, we're, tonight we're gonna learn hopefully chapter one of the Megillah. There are 10 chapters in the Megillah. The last one's very short. We have, I think, eight weeks for this course. So we'll be able to go through it carefully, understand maybe parts of the Megillah that we in the past have not really noticed or paid attention to. Um, but uh, just to kind of briefly outline it to refresh ourselves or for those who are less familiar with the story, I put on the source sheet the Purim story in 10 sentences. So just to very quickly, <clears throat> number one, King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, um, makes a big party in the city of Shushan, the capital. By the way, this story happens after the destruction of the first temple, before the building of the second temple. Um, I don't have my years uh, exactly right now. It's probably about 2,800 years ago or so. Um, no, less, I guess, 2,600 years ago around then. So, uh, so th it happens between the two temples while the, while the Jewish people are in exile. And, uh, and King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, he makes a big party in Shushan, the capital. And at this party, number two, he summons his queen Vashti, who refuses to come. And she is deposed as queen. And our tradition is that she was killed for refusing to come. Number three, he conducts a search for a new queen. And Esther, whose Jewish identity remains secret, is chosen. I had to get this into 10 sentences. So I kind of combined sentences. Esther, whose Jewish identity remains secret, is chosen. She's chosen as queen. Obviously very miraculous. Meanwhile, Esther has a cousin. His name is Mordechai. He's a leader of the Jewish people. 
He overhears two guards plotting to kill the king Ahasuerus. He reports it and he saves the king's life. Number five, Haman, the villain, he rises to power as the king's prime minister. He convinces the king to issue an edict instructing all citizens to attack the Jews on a specific day, the 13th of Adar, of the Hebrew month of Adar, and thereby wiping them out. That is his plan. The Jews get wind of this plan and they are very frightened and they fast and they pray. And it's up to Esther to intervene and intercede with the king. She's the queen after all. <clears throat> and uh, not again, Ahasuerus doesn't know that she's Jewish, but it's up to her to intercede. So she, she does so. And number seven, she invites the king and Haman to a feast. She actually doesn't reveal what it is that she's going to ask for at that first feast. And then <clears throat> meanwhile, between the first and second feast, that she's going to invite them to. She invites them to another feast. So number eight though, and during that time, Haman comes to ask permission to hang Mordechai. But instead, the king, Ahasuerus, instructs him to lead Mordechai around on the king's horse and the king closes a reward for Mordechai for saving his life. So just as Haman is coming to kind of put, put Mordechai to sleep, put him out of the picture, he wants to hang him. And instead, he ends up, that's just the night that Ahasuerus realizes, is reminded that Mordechai received his life. He never rewarded him. He has him paraded around town on the king's horse, wearing the king's clothing. Right after that, Hamung is once again summoned back to the palace to join Ahasuerus for a second feast with Esther. It's at that feast that Esther reveals her identity and reveals that Haman is trying to destroy her and her people. And they and Ahasuerus is very angry at Haman, and Haman is hung. And then the Jews are granted permission to defend themselves. Ahasuerus is not able or won't rescind the decree to wipe out the Jews, but he will give them the opportunity to defend themselves. And they end up going to battle against their enemies, those who would choose to attack them still on the 13th of Adar and the Jews achieve a miraculous victory. Now I should just mention that one thing that we certainly will get to, but um, is that Haman actually is killed. Haman meets his end in chapter, um, the end of chapter seven. So even after that, there's chapter eight, nine, and 10, which is kind of, everybody feels like the story is already over once Haman is killed, but there's three chapters still left to, to learn. So that's something we'll have to understand what specifically what goes on in those chapters. Um, why is the story not over yet? So we'll explore that. Now, I think it's obvious if we look at these events, um, we have a appreciation just from, from this quick list, the 10, you know, the 10 sentences, what the, uh, most important turning points, events, miraculous occurrences are in the story. Vashti being killed at the early on in order to make to open up a space for Esther. You know, Esther being selected out of all the all the girls in the kingdom to be the queen, to be in position to to make a difference. Um, the the timing of Mordechai kind of first of all, Mordechai being able to save the king's life. The timing of the king remembering that Mordechai saved his life just when 
they're trying to wipe out the Jews. And now this Jew, you know, is, is, is once again, the king is reminded of what, what this Jew did for him. Haman, you know, the timing with everything with, it's those, you know, those key points in the story, I think we can appreciate. They're just, you know, beyond, beyond normal for all those things to come together. And it's, it's absolutely miraculous. But if it was just that, then the Megillah could be much shorter, maybe 10 sentences if you put them together like I did. And, uh, and we would, uh, it wouldn't be so hard to, to, to learn to read the Megillah and it wouldn't be so expensive to buy your own Megillah. It'll be much shorter. However, it's quite a bit longer. And uh, that's because there's actually much more to the story and many more import- important occurrences. If we examine the story in depth, verse by verse. So we'll see there's so much more, so much more to the story, so much more to the miracle. So for example, what precipitated Vashti's downfall, Vashti's death? What led to that? Why, you know, there was a party. Why was there a party? Um, How did Esther end up being chosen? What, What made that happen, in other words? What little details, what little decisions, what, what contributed to that? What were the ingredients that led to Haman's downfall? You know, these are, those may be like the key points in the story, but there are, there's some, one thing led to the next, led to the next. There's so many important details that set up each of these miraculous occurrences. And those details are each, are all part of the miracle. They are miraculous in their, in their own way. And, uh, and that's what we're, as an overall goal of this, uh, of this class, we're going to number one, try to just understand the whole Megillah. And number two, try to pinpoint those, those details, um, how they're important, why, how various events led to the miracle. Okay, so if you have your own, either the source sheet or the Megillah, you can, or your own Megillah, you can follow along. We're going to be doing almost everything in English so that it's accessible to everyone. At times we may have to bring in the Hebrew a little bit, but it's mostly gonna be English. Okay, so verse number one, if you look on your source, you get the source number three. Sorry, no, that was the source number four. Um, Verse one, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. He was the Ahasuerus who reigned from Hodu to Cush, 127 provinces. This translation, by the way, is taken off of Chabad.com. They have a very nice translation of the entire Tanakh, all the, all the books of the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And uh, I did make some changes to fit in based on the explanations and commentaries that I'm bringing, but it's almost, almost all straight off of, of the Chabad website. So it came to pass, in the days of Ahasuerus, he was the Ahasuerus who reigned from Hodu to Kush, 127 provinces. So who was this Ahasuerus? It's a little bit unclear, and it's hotly debated. Um, The Talmud seems to imply that he did not come from royalty. If you look in the same source there, it's the Talmud Megillah comments who reigned. Rav said this comes to teach that he reigned on his own, meaning he was not a descendant of royalty. That's definitely the simple reading of this. Again, others disagree. They say he was a descendant of royalty. but uh, in, in this approach, he, 
kind of fought his way, used it with his money, with his power. He was able to, to, to become the king in Persia. He then conquered more lands. And eventually he, he was involved in the conquering of Babylonia. And, uh, and, he, um, and he ends up marrying Vashti, who is of Babylonian royalty. She is the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of, of Babylonia, the, the daughter of Balshatzar, I think, who was the next king. And, uh, and so he marries royalty to kind of bridge the, the kingdoms together by marrying, marrying into that family. Um, so that's what we know. He ruled now at this point, a great, uh, a, a great kingdom, um, empire of 127 provinces. Again, a bit of a discussion was that the entire populated world at the time, is that referring to or not? Whatever it was, it was a very large swath of land. Now, if we continue in verses two and three, it says, in those days when King Ahasuer sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he made a banquet for all his princes and his servants, the army of Persia and Medea, the nobles, and the princes of the provinces who were before him. So he makes this big party. Now he introduces us in verse two to the party by telling us that in those days when he was sitting on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the capital, is that important that he was sitting on his throne? What is it telling us? So one understanding is that this is actually telling us what this party was all about. Um, the Midrash, the Midrash, our sages teach us in the Midrash that he had had a beautiful throne made that was supposed to resemble the throne of King Solomon, of King Shlomo which was a tremendous work of art, architecture, art, beautiful throne. Ahasuerus actually would have preferred to just use Shlomo's throne, Solomon's throne, but he couldn't. Miraculously, the, there were like animals that were, that were um, built on the sides of the throne that would become animated and, and would not allow Ahasuerus to take that throne. That's what the Midrash teaches us. But in any event, he wanted a throne like Shlomo's. He had it built in... Shushan, and this, according to the Midrash, was a celebration of the completion of his beautiful throne. Now, the Vilna Gong, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, says that it's actually not so simple. There's even more to it than that. The verse is telling us that why he was in Shushan. See, he wanted this throne built. The craftsmen were in Shushan. Previous to this, the capital of, this, of the empire, the Babylonian empire, which he took over, was not in the city of Shushan. It was in a different city. He wanted this throne built, and he had it built in Shushan, because that's where the craftsmen were. Well, after they built it, they realized it was too hard to transport. Now, he had this beautiful throne, so he had a choice. He either could do, go, you know, do without the throne and still set up his capital in the previous capital, or he can move his capital to Shushan. He decided to move the capital to the throne. He'll make the, the cap, Shushan the capital because that's where his throne was. And why did he do that? Because it was in Shushan, the, the, the Megillah is hinting to. Because it was in Shushan. And who happened to be in Shushan? Mordechai. Mordechai lived in Shushan. 
So the Vilna Gaon says that God arranged it that he should that he should end up moving the capital to Shushan so that Mordechai could be present to bring about the salvation. So that's already, you know, things are in motion already. God is setting everything up for this ultimate salvation. That's the Vilna Gaon's approach here. Now, there are many other explanations. There are many, many commentaries on the, on the Megillah and many different explanations for why various things occur. Um, there are many explanations for why he was making this party. The, the Talmud actually gives a different explanation. The Talmud says that he had been concerned about the Jews. You know, the, the Jewish people had been quite a power in, in Israel. And it was known that after they were banned, they were sent into exile, there, there was a prophecy that they would return after 70 years. And Achashverosh calculated the 70 years. And when those 70 years were up, according to his calculation, and the temple had not yet been rebuilt, he said, it must be that it's not going to happen. The prophecy is not going to come true. That's why he made the party, the Talmud says. He was celebrating that the Jewish prophecy would not come true. They had The 70 years were up, and they had not had their temple rebuilt. That is cause for celebration, which, if, you know, which also calls into question very much the attendance of many Jews at this party, if that's what it was celebrating. Makes it very problematic, besides for whatever issues. Now, now um, he was wrong with that calculation, the Talmud says. He miscalculated, and shortly after that, the temple was rebuilt. But uh, that's perhaps what he was celebrating. Um, another explanation given is that he wanted to demonstrate his power. He had this very large empire. He was concerned that there could be places in the far, you know, the far corners of his empire that said, oh, we're too far for him to, you know, to, to, to care about us. We'll stop paying our taxes. We'll set up our own government. We'll set up our own king. He was concerned about this. So he wanted to show off his power. He wanted to show that he has access to all reaches of the kingdom. He was able to invite people from all parts of the kingdom. He was able to serve wine and other things, show things off from, that, that from all parts of the kingdom. He wanted to show, I can reach anywhere. Don't think to rebel just because you're far away. This, Rabbi Shlomo Kabbitz writes, combines very nicely with the explanation that he was worried about the Jews. He was maybe even worried about you know, a combination that there would be some rebellion, that they would get the Jews involved because the, the Jewish people wanted to return to Israel. This way, he sell, you know, he was at, in one shot saying, nobody's rebelling, no, nothing, you know, nothing doing. I am in full control of my kingdom. But there's one other possibility, and uh, I think all of these can really tie together. And that is based on the approach of the Malbim, Rabbi. Um, Rabbi Meir Leibish from the 19th century, the Malbim, has a just fantastic commentary on all the Torah, really, um, and in particular in, in the Megillah. And in this chapter, we're really going to draw a lot from the Malbim. The, the Malbim says that there are different types of monarchies, and in those times already, there are absolute monarchies where the king has full control over everything, 
everybody is all the all the subjects of the kingdom are indentured to him they're his servants they do as he pleases he controls the coffers completely the, the treasury of the kingdom is his he can make up his own laws that's that's an absolute monarchy and then there's and then there's like a constitutional monarchy there's a king but he's bound by certain laws he doesn't have boundless limitless power and uh the the, the 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 treasury is not his doesn't belong he doesn't own the treasury of the kingdom he can't just make up his own laws he doesn't have control over everything and the and the the the, the people of the kingdom are not his slaves they are they they have certain obligations you know to keep the kingdom running they have to pay taxes but and other things but they he doesn't own them he's they're not his slaves what what's the difference you know an absolute monarch is someone who came to power on his own he uh he conquered he she demonstrated his power he can control he, he he can take control somebody who was appointed by the people is not going to have as much control Ahasuerus was in a position where he kind of was a bit of both because he had done a lot of conquering but then he married Vashti and in doing so, he was able to draw in many provinces. You know, he now had joined the royal family of Babylonia. And this was this attract was able to, you know, people were now on their own. Different provinces came under his rule, but willingly. Those provinces he did not have absolute control over. Um, he was more of a constitutional monarch. The Malbim says that the purpose of this party and many of the things that went on at the same time was an attempt, was a power grab by Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus at this juncture is trying to become a absolute monarch for all the provinces. And, uh, and he's gonna do so by number one, moving the capital so he's still he moves the capital as we mentioned the capital had previously been in in in, in babylonia the capital of this empire he moves it to to shushan he builds a new throne he says i don't need i don't need the throne that you know these pre previous kings have sat on I'll, I'll build my own throne i don't i don't need them and he throws this tremendous party showing off his tremendous wealth and his tremendous power and Furthermore, we'll talk about when he summons Vashti, but that's going to be part of this as well. So this whole thing, this whole party is not just, uh, according to the Malbim, you know, just, I want to just show off my wealth. I, I enjoy, I love, you know, pleasures and I love parties. This is actually a political maneuver to try to gain full control over this empire, absolute control rather than being bound by, uh, you know, governmental powers by a uh, by by the laws of the kingdom. So that's what this is about. So and this I think can kind of bring together all those explanations. He had finished conquering. He wanted he was he wanted to show control. He, you know he 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 wanted to to show, you know, the Jewish people are not going back to to Israel. This was all to show his his power, and but but in doing so, he was going to actually achieve greater power and greater control over the kingdom. So 
<clears throat> let's continue in the verses. So verse number four. Um, and we'll just read through this. It's a whole list of all the things that he had at the party, how fancy he was when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty, many days, 180 days. And when these days were over, the king made for all the people present in Shushan, the capital, for everyone, both great and small, a banquet for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's orchard. So there's a, this 180-day 80 party for everyone from all parts of the kingdom, and then this seven-day party for the people of Shushan. Verse six, there were spreads of white fine cotton and blue embroidered with cords of linen and purple on silver rods and marble columns, couches of gold and silver on a pavement of green, white, shell and onyx marble. And they gave them to drink in golden vessels and the vessels differed from one another and royal wine was plentiful according to the bounty of the king. So, okay, it's a lot of detail. I, like I said, I trying to figure out what each what each detail is for, and this I, I can't explain why it has to go into so much detail, but we have a little bit of an explanation based on the a midrash. The midrash teaches us that that Achashverosh had a very large treasury that he wanted to show off, and in that treasury he had. Um, 1,080 different types of treasures that he wanted to be able to show. And his plan was he would show six a day. And that would, that's why his party lasted for 180 days. And then after that, the last seven days, he had to show new things. So he set up new things. He had, uh, then he, he kind of made this, uh, if you look again in verse, uh, in verse five, when these days were over, the king made for all the people present the Chush on the capital a banquet for seven days. This was in the court of the garden of the king's orchard. Because it was for fewer people, it opened up new possibilities of what you could demonstrate. It could be out in the orchard. However, by the time those seven days were running down, he didn't really have much to show off anymore. So that's when, perhaps in his drunkenness, he decided the one thing I have left to show off is Vashti. So Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, one of the leading Torah scholars of our time, explains that perhaps that's why the, the, the Megillah is going into all the detail, describing all the, all the beautiful things that he was presenting. It's bringing out this idea that, that Achashverosh's goal here was to be able to show something different every day. And it's showing us what led to him calling forth Vashti, because by the end, he had nothing left to show. The last thing he had to show was his beautiful wife. And that's why he ends up calling for her. And that sets into motion, you know, Vashti's, uh, Vashti meeting her end. Um, additionally, as we mentioned, he, he, he's making this tremendous party to show off the wealth of his kingdom because he, he wants to show that, uh, that this is his. This is his. Remember, he wants to present himself as an absolute monarch. He's saying, "This is, I'm. I am not bound by anybody else." He pulls the. If somebody is a constitutional monarch, the treasury doesn't belong to them. Somebody who is an absolute monarch, it's all his. So he pulls out all this treasure to show that the 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 treasury of the kingdom, it's all mine. I could do what I want with it. This was again part of his power grab to uh 
to show that he can rule absolutely. Verse 8, the bottom of the first page of the source sheet. And the drinking was according to the law, with no one coercing, for so had the king ordained upon every steward of his house to do according to every man's wish. So they didn't force them to drink, which was apparently a Persian practice, was you got this huge cup and you stuffed it down somebody's mouth. But they didn't do that at this party. Um, but they uh, rather was everybody according to his house to do according to every man's wish. Ahasuerus had a goal. He wanted to make the people at this party happy. He wanted to meet every man's wish. And the Talmud here comments, it's the top of the next page, no one coercing, nobody was forced to drink. Rabbi Elazar said, this teaches that each and every guest at the feast was poured a drink from wine of his own country. So we mentioned earlier that one of Ahasuerus's goals was to try to show that he has access to all ends of the kingdom. Don't think this kingdom is too big for me to control. I can get to anywhere. And he shows that by serving wine from, you're, you're from the furthest province, don't worry. We have, I have agents there. I have, the, I have your, that wine, here it is. He was able to serve everybody what they, uh, what they were used to. But not only that, but the verse says, this, the end of this verse, number eight, each man according to his wish, to do according to every man's wish. To do according to each man's wish. So many commentaries point out on this, that here Ahasuerus, he has this, this goal. He wants, to, he wants everybody at this party to get exactly what they ask for. Whatever you ask for, you can have. And then just moments later, days later, during the same party, he asks, he, do, he, he requests the presence of Ashti and he doesn't get his wish. So that leads, that's part of what leads to his great anger and leads to him getting rid of Ashti because here he was giving everybody, you, whatever you ask for, you can have. And then he asks and he doesn't get it. So, so the, the Megillah is bringing that out to show that that's something that led to Vashti's fall was his, his will during the party to give everybody according to their wish, and then he can't do that himself. Verse number nine, and now we meet Vashti. Also, Vashti, the queen, made a banquet for the women in the royal house of King Ahasuerus. Vashti makes a banquet. Why is Vashti making a banquet? Is she trying to show her power over the kingdom? Is she trying to show, you know, show off her new throne? She didn't have a new throne. She wasn't the, 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 the monarch. So it's not clear why she was making a party. It seems she saw Ahasuerus making a party. She wanted to make a party as well. If she hadn't made a party, then again, who knows what would have happened? She may have, you know, wouldn't have been surrounded by other people. If Ahasuerus summoned her, she might have come. She may not have been nearby. The, uh, the verse specifically says that it was in the royal house of King Ahasuerus. Why is she making a party in the royal house of King Ahasuerus? She should make her party in her royal house. So she wants to, she wants to show that, you know, Ahasuerus, you're not, uh, you know, you're not the only one in charge here. I can make a party in your house, in your royal house, and I have, I have power as well. 
Now, if she hadn't made it in his royal house, again, even if she had made it somewhere else, but she wouldn't be right there. She was right there, which meant a number of things. Number one, that the, I can think again, it's the Vilna Gon who says that they could hear the women talking. The Talmud ta says that when they summoned Vashti, it was because they were arguing who are the most beautiful. The Vilna Gon says, the men were arguing, who's the most, you know, who, who, what type, which women are the most beautiful? And so Ahasuerus says, you know, my wife's the most beautiful and he summons her. The Vilna Gon says they could hear the women's party going on because it was right there because Vashti had decided to make it in the royal house of King Ahasuerus as opposed to in a different part of the palace, which was where her quarters were. And so this again led to her being summoned and, uh, and, as well, um, we see that she kind of sets herself up for this. Not, not, in other words, her own decisions partially lead to what happens to her as well, which is also a theme throughout the Megillah, where, where Ahasuerus's decisions, Haman's decisions are all going to come back sort of to haunt them. Um, Fine. Again, if she wasn't nearby, he might not have sent for her, but she was right there and he sends for her. And that's, and then we'll see what happens next. So now let's read verse 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the king's heart was merry with wine, he ordered Mehuman, Bizisa, Harvona, Bixa, and Avaksa, Zeser, and Charkas, the seven chamberlains, sorry, seeming Hebrew, who ministered in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Verse 11, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the royal crown to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was of comely appearance, she was beautiful. So Ahasuerus decides to summon Vashti. Now, I mentioned the Talmudic story that they were arguing who's the most beautiful. Ahasuerus decides to summon his wife to show that she's the most beautiful. I mentioned the explanation of Rav Chaim Kanievsky that every day he was trying to show off more and more and eventually had nothing left to show off. So he, he says, I have one, th one thing left to show off and it's Vashti. That's why he summoned her. However, the Malbim understands that this was his plan from the very beginning. This was his plan from the very beginning. This was part of his power grab. Remember, Vashti is actually a problem for him. Not because he doesn't want to be married to her, but she, in a certain way, she, she is the reason that he is not viewed as an absolute monarch. Because when he marries her, Babylonian royalty, that helps him draw in new provinces that come under his reign, but he didn't conquer them. So he has a certain lack of power over them. He wants to show, no, no, I didn't just form a political alliance with, with Vashti, where she's like my equal. I conquered Babylonia. I conquered you. She happens to be my wife, but she's not the queen. She's first Vashti, and then she's the queen. You'll notice in verse 9, in verse 11, it refers to her not as the queen Vashti, but as Vashti the queen. Ahasuerus wants to make clear that she is first Vashti, and then she's the queen. She's, she, she, she was nothing. I had conquered Babylonia, I had wiped them out. I had cut off her line. She had nothing. I married her for her beauty. That's it. And I'll prove it to you. 
I'm going to call her. I'm going to summon her to show off her beauty. That's all I married her for in the first place. And so in no way am I only the king of Babylonia because of this political alliance. I conquered Babylonia. You are my subjects, not because of your agreement, but because I, I, I took over Babylonia. And so he sends for Vashti. And the verse says, before the king with the royal crown, the Malbim explains before the king with the royal crown means that she should put the crown on before the king. She should come without the crown and she'll put it on in front of the king, meaning I'm what gives her the crown. She doesn't have her own crown. It's all from me. I'm the one who holds all the power here. Now Vashti does not come. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti, you'll notice it flips. Queen Vashti, not Vashti the queen. Hamalka Vashti in Hebrew, the queen Vashti, because she says, no, I'm queen Vashti. I'm not Vashti the queen. I'm first queen and then Vashti. Well, it's all simultaneous, but it's not that I'm first Vashti and then I became the queen because I married Ahasuerus. I'm queen Vashti. I'm queen in my own right. I have my own power. And so she refused to come at the king's behest which was brought by the hand of the chamberlains, the Sarisim, and the king became very wroth, I guess angry, and his anger burnt within him. So he's very upset by this. Now, why does she refuse to come? So according to the Malbim, because she realized what this was about. She understood that this was a power grab, which is partially why, according to him, she made the, her own party in the first place. She wants to show, no, no, I am, I have power too. And my line is what gives you some of your power. I, I don't only have power because I'm married to you. I am queen first and then and your wife second. That is one reason why she refuses to come. That's according to the Malvin. Alternatively, it could also be the way that she was summoned. She's insulted. You know, Ahasuerus deliberately sends for her in a disrespectful way. Right? He doesn't want to show her any respect. That's the whole point, is that she's nothing without him. He sends the Sarisim, the Chamberlains. And uh, he doesn't go himself to get her. He sends his, you know, his, 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 his servants. But not only that, the, the Midrash explains that Sarisim comes from, is a certain type of servant. The word Sris in Hebrew is someone who has been castrated, somebody who cannot reproduce, somebody who will not have any temptation to lie with the queen or with anybody, any of the women that Ahasuerus sends them for. That's their, that's their, that's their job. They are people that, he, that the king is comfortable sending to, to, uh, to bring his wife or one of his concubines to him. Now, Vashti is very insulted by this, that, that Ahasuerus would feel the need to, to do that. And uh, that also leads to her refusal. So it's a number of possibilities. It could be all of them, it could be some of them, but she is insulted. Ahasuerus doesn't come himself. She's insulted that he sends these specific servants. And also, she perhaps understands what this is all about that this is a power grab by Ahasuerus. So now Ahasuerus is very, very angry not just because she refuses, it's more than that. She's ruining everything. The whole point is 
that he's going to call her and show that she is nothing without him, that he has total control of this, of this kingdom. It's not because he married her that he has any control, that, that, he, 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 that he has control of the Babylonian provinces. He has total control because he conquered. So he's very, he's very angry. So verse, uh, verse 13, and the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for so was the king's word, to present the case before all who knew law and judgment. Very interesting verse. The wise men who knew the times, for so was the king's word, to present the case before all who knew law and judgment. What is going on in this verse? Let's just read a little more. Verse 14, and the nearest him were Karshna, Shesar, Admasa, Sarshish, Meres, Marsana, Memuchan, the seven officers of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face, who sat first in the kingdom. So he has these officers there. And then he asks, 15, according to the law, what shall be done to Queen Vashti? And as much as she did not comply with the order of the king, brought by the hand of the chamberlains. So Ahasuerus has a problem now because he actually loves Vashti. You know, he, 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 he married her and he loves her. He just doesn't want her, her to have any power. But he's kind of stuck now. So what's he going to do? Because she refused to come. So he realizes, says the Malbim, that there's two ways that this case could be judged. They could look at it as, as you know, a, a, a case of the state, of the, of the king, and a subject versus the king. And if that's how they look at it, how the judges will look at it, then it's going to mean trouble for Vashti. But if they look at it just as like a man and his wife, so then Vashti, you know, then, then we, could, we could kind of justify her behavior and she won't necessarily have to be punished or not so severely. Achashverosh does not really want Vashti to be punished, as angry as he is. So he's, he's trying to now work it out that she won't have to be punished. So he has a choice. He could either go to the wise men who knew the times the wise men who knew the times are the judges based on who, who judge the, the uh, I guess, uh, royal cases, the cases involving the king. They know the times, meaning based on what the situation is of the king. Is he on his throne? What's, what's going on? That's how they judge. But he said to them, no. I don't want you. He wants to present it before those who know. Here the translation is law and judgment. In, in, in the Hebrew, it's das vadin. But basically, he wants this to be judged differently. He wants this to be judged just like a family, you know, like a family, a family matter. Um, so, and the word das, which here is either law or judgment, but it really means more sort of like what's ethical. And he wanted this to, to be judged, you know, is this proper ethical behavior? Can this behavior be justified for Vashti, her choice, or not? Ahasuerus wanted to basically show that we could, we could really forgive her, we could justify this. And you'll notice all of a sudden in verse 15, where he poses the question, according to the law, what shall be done to Queen Vashti? Now she's Queen Vashti again. She's not Vashti the queen. He's giving her the respect again that she's now Queen Vashti because he wants to get her to get out of this. And as much as she did not comply with the order of the king, what did she do wrong? It doesn't mention anything about all the embarrassment 
and the, the, the effect on his political maneuvering here, he just says, she didn't listen to, the, to, the, to my order, okay? And not only that, but it was by the hand of the chamberlains that I sent my, my chamberlains, which also justifies her, 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 her behavior. So Ahasuerus is working hard now actually to get Vashti out of trouble. He does not want her to have to be punished. And now enters Memuchan. Memuchan was one of those advisors that was listed previously in verse 14. Then Memuchan declared before the king and the officers. And Memuchan is going to be the difference maker here. And he actually has a lot to say. He says, not against the king alone as Vashti the queen. He switches it back, right, to Vashti the queen. Done wrong, but against all the officers and all the peoples that are in the, all King Ahasuerus's provinces. It's not just against, this is not a family matter, he's saying. Ahasuerus, you want this to be judged like a family matter? This is a matter of the state. It's not just against the king alone, which we could then treat it like a family matter and judge it accordingly. This is a matter of the state. It's against all the officers and all the people. And he's going to explain. 17, for the word of the queen will spread to all the women to make them despise their husbands in their eyes when they say, King Ahasuerus ordered to bring Vashti the queen before him, but she did not come. So when this, he's going to make two points. He's going to make a point about a wife's respect for her husband's desires, which affects all the kingdom, all the people. And then he's going to make a point about um, Ahasuerus's political ambitions, which also affect sort of the, the matters of, of, of government and state. So his first point here is about the, the, how this will affect every, every household. People, all the women, they're just gonna hear the story. They're not gonna know the background. They're not gonna know why Vashti refused, that she refused because she didn't wanna give power to Ahasuerus, that this is a political game here. They're not gonna, people hear the, the rumors, they read the, you know, the tabloids, that the rumor spread what happened to the royals, right? So they're just going to hear what Vashti did to Ahasuerus. And they're going to say, King Ahasuerus, the king, he ordered to bring Vashti, the queen, before him. Not such a big deal, right? It's, it's a small request. And she still didn't come. So what's that? So, so, and so they're going to say, uh, you know, me and you, my, my, my dear husband, you're not even a king. And, uh, and you were asking me to cook dinner? No way, right? And there's gonna be rebellion in the kingdom. This is going to affect all of the relationships of husband and wife, which Mimuchan felt very clearly that husbands should be in charge of their wives. And Ahasuerus, you are, if, if word gets out that the queen did, you know, refused you, this is going to be very bad for, for the, um, family dynamics, and this is not just about you, this is a, a matter of state. That's number one. <clears throat> number two, by the way, the, I, I believe the commentaries in the Midrash maybe explained that Memuchan, his wife was more prominent than him. That's why he, he, was, he was concerned because he, he, uh, he, he had a hard time with her. So it was a personal thing also. Verse 18, and then he goes on and he says that this is also going to affect your political um, dreams. This day, the ladies of Persia and Medea who heard the word, meaning the ladies, the, uh, the, 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 the nobles who were there, 
the ones who were present, not the ones who are just going to read the tabloid story, but the ones who understood what was going on, what was really going on, this tug of war for power between Ahasuerus and Vashti. So they, th those who heard the word of the queen will say to all the officers, the king and doesn't actually say what they'll say. There will be much contempt and wrath. But again, the commentaries explain, Malbim really, that he was arguing here that, that there, this, this is going to affect your political ambitions. If, if Vashti refused to come to you and these nobles who were present at her party understand the tug of war the, 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 that was going on, then uh, that's, that's, you're not gonna be able to achieve that which you're looking to achieve, this absolute power. And then he tells them, not verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal edict go forth from before him and let it be inscribed in the laws of Persia and Medea and let it not be revoked. So first of all, he says, Ahasuerosh, we should right now put forth a law that gives you absolute power. Again, to read those words, let a royal edict go forth from before him and, and, and it should be that any royal edict that goes forth from before you should be inscribed in the laws of Persia and Medea and not be revoked. Your word should be law. We're going to make that happen right now. This is your political ambition today. This is what we're going to make happen. And the first law is that Vashti shall not come before King Ahasuerus. She is never allowed to be seen before you again. Again, it never says explicitly that she was killed, but uh, that's how, how the, 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 the Talmud... Our tradition understands it. Um, that's going to be the, the first law. But, but even before that really is the law that you should be able to make the laws. That a law that you make cannot be revoked. And let the king give her royal position to her peer who is better than she. And he tells her, you should appoint a new queen, one who is better than her, and specifically one who doesn't have the, the baggage of royalty. In this case, Vashti's royalty was somewhat baggage to Ahasuerus. It, it tied him to a previous kingdom. It made it seem as if he only ruled because of the agreement of those provinces. And that's, that's a negative here. Best would be to take a, a new queen who has no royal connections, which of course is what he's going to do. So it says the matter pleased the king, of course, he's, going, he's being granted power. And the princes, the officers who were there, the officials who were there. And since it pleased the officials, they allowed it to be signed into law. Then now the king would have absolute power. And the king did according to Memuchan. So Ahasuerus at this point is granted absolute power. And this is very important for the story going forward. Because there are many things that he's going to do that, at least according to some, there's different ways you could look at it, but can only be done if he had total control to, uh, to conduct the search the way that he did for a new queen, to, uh, to, to agree to the, the, the edict of Haman to destroy the, to, to wipe out the Jews. Could he have done that if he didn't have as much power? And perhaps most importantly, when Haman, when Esther accuses Haman, and, Ahash, and points, you know, identifies Haman as the one trying to wipe her out. And they say, let's kill Haman. Does Ahasuerus have the power to do that? Haman, who would be his prime minister, does he have that power to just on his own decide that Haman should be killed? Not necessarily, except 
he was granting it at this point in time. So this whole party is important. It's leading up, it's leading up to, it's leading up to this moment where he's now granting absolute power, which is going to be very essential for the story. But let's just close with one more important point, which is the comment of the Talmud. The Talmud says, it's under verse 21 here, Megillah 12b, and Memuchan said, so this advisor Memuchan, the Talmud says, Memuchan, a sage talking about Brisa, Memuchan is Haman. According to the Talmud, this Memuchan was actually Haman. Haman was the advisor. Why was he called Memuchan at this point? It's an obvious and, and good question. Commentaries try to deal with it. Some say Memuchan was actually the name of his position, not his name. Memuchan is like somebody who is ready and prepared as it goes on. Why was he referred to as Memuchan? Because he was prepared for calamity, either his own calamity or the calamity of the Jewish people, however you want to understand that. But Memuchan was Haman. According to this, it's Haman himself who's setting everything up here. We understand why he wants the king to have power because Haman has his own plans in mind, but it's also ultimately going to be his own undoing. It's going to be his own undoing. The Talmud comments on a later verse, it's that last source, number five, Haman had come to the outer court of the king's house to speak to the king about hanging Mordechai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So the, the, the Talmud comments, this should be understood to me on the gallows that he had prepared for himself. The gallows that he had prepared for himself meaning he sort of prepared his own death. He prepared his own death. He, he gave, besides that he built the gallows for himself, but he gave Ahasuerus the power to have him killed at that moment. Had there been a court case, you know, Haman had a lot of friends. He may not have met his end at that point, but it was quick. He had already built the gallows. Ahasuerus made his decision. He, he set himself up for this in the end. He's the one who gave Ahasuerus the power to sentence him to death. So just to close, again, to summarize, we have so many important um, events that happen in this chapter. We have the, the Vashti being summoned. We have Vashti refusing to come, Vashti being deposed. So important for, the, for Esther to be able to, to rise to that position. And we see it, there was so much that led up to that, to, to Ahasuerus' decision to call Vashti, Vashti's refusal, all these details which are hinted to in the Megillah as to why those things played out. Um, and then we have Ahasuerus gaining the power that is really the setup for the rest of the story. And we have, according to the, to the Talmud again, and even if you don't, you just read on a simple level, you have this Memuchan, who may even be Haman, setting things up here to give Ahasuerus the power that ultimately is going to end up leading to Haman's downfall, as well as many other pieces of the story. So we will, uh, we have one more verse in the chapter. We're actually going to save it for next week because we have quite a bit to say about it. Okay, thank you so much for joining and I'm definitely open to questions. I am open to questions in the middle of the class also, but uh, okay. Thank you.